What does the evidence on learning, memory and ageing tell us about how to keep our minds sharp and active as we grow older? How can physical activity improve cognitive function? And do we decline as we age or simply change? In this podcast, UCLA psychology professor Alan Castell talks to our Director of Education, Stuart Kime, about his new book, Better With Age, and he offers practical tips for staying mentally sharp as the years pass. Metacognition, memory, cognitive load and teaching all come under the microscope in this episode, and you can find out more in Alan's brilliant book, available from all good booksellers. Okay, so uh, today I'm talking to Professor Alan Castell at the uh, University of California in Los Angeles, and uh, it's good evening uh, here, but uh, I guess good morning to you, Alan. Good morning. And thanks for ever so much for, uh, for, for joining us today. Um, uh, hopefully, uh, over the next uh, few minutes, we're going to um, have, a, have a, a pretty interesting and in-depth chat about uh, your work and your writing in particular. Uh, but before we get to any of that, um, it would be great if you could just introduce yourself a little, say a little bit about your work and particularly um, about, about the book. Certainly. Well, I'm a cognitive psychologist and I study memory and aging, and I kind of fell into this realm of research um, when I was a high school student and a college student because I was trying to study for many exams and I learned kind of tricks, mnemonics, that could allow me to memorize vast amounts of information that I wouldn't normally be trying to learn, such as chemistry or calculus. Um, And I was pretty good at tricking my brain into memorizing things like the periodic table. But when I would take tests or exams, especially in college, I realized I didn't really have a deeper understanding in the material, despite that I spent a lot of time studying. And I thought that's strange because I have a pretty good memory. Um, And I also had some grandparents who, as they got older, would seem more forgetful. And they'd often confuse me with my brother in terms of calling us by, you know, different names. But I noticed they were pretty good at remembering stories from 50 years ago or even the price of uh, oranges that they bought at the market yesterday. So I I was interested really in how memory works, partly when it doesn't work well, but also how it changes, not necessarily declines with age. Um, So that's kind of the jumping off point for the research that I've been doing on memory and aging and kind of the angle we're most interested in is how people selectively remember important information. So when you're overwhelmed with information, how do you focus on what's important? And then more specifically, as we get older, you know, despite attention, maybe feeling more difficult or maybe slowing down, are we able to kind of recruit our resources to focus on remembering what's most important to us? I think that's that's so interesting that notion of uh, you know information and managing information and 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 particularly the the idea of selection and of working out what is truly important to us and and, and what's less so uh, you know we we live in I guess what some call an information age and uh, you know there seems to be an ever increasing dose of of uh, you know information of all sorts coming our way so. Um, I guess uh, you know it's, it's going to be interesting to pick up, particularly on that idea of of, um, of selection and and the kind of the activities of of, um, of of 
you know, of a human being going through the life course in terms of what I guess some people perceive as, uh, you know, becoming forgetful, um, yet perhaps others such as yourself might think of as, you know, a, a process of, of selection. But we'll get into that um, later on. Um, so we're, we're, I, I've been reading your, uh, your, your book, Better With Age, um, and, um, and I, I found it really fascinating simply from the point of view of, uh, I guess, in, in my own, um, well, relatively middle life, um, thinking about uh, how to try to be you know, really good at aging, I guess. Uh, you know, it's, it's something that seems to become uh, you know, more and more present in my mind um, as, as I get older. So without, without spoiling it for, for um, anybody who's listening right now, uh, for people who'd like to read the book Better With Age, um, what's it all about in a nutshell? Well, the point of me writing this book was that there's a lot of negativity associated with aging. We want to avoid aging. We become more forgetful. We're slower. Um, but the truth might be that as we get older, we're better at learning more about ourselves. And this is this concept of metacognition, which we'll return to. But learning how to learn and knowing what you know, all of these things involve some self-reflection. And as we just go through life, we make mistakes. We learn from these mistakes. We learn what we're good at. We learn what we need to get better at. And so as we arrive in middle age and older age, it feels like you know we have more information on our plate. We're struggling to keep up with our jobs, our families. But the truth is we also have some perspective. And whether that's wisdom, um, or not, that can help us kind of manage our memory, manage our life, so that we can emerge, if we're healthy, as happy and content in, in older age, despite all the declines that might come with old age, like you know, you know becoming slower, mm -hmm. not remembering as much. So the book is really meant to kind of talk about some of the myths associated with aging, without spoiling it, what we can do to get better with age and also present some kind of mentors for aging. A lot of us, will, when we think of old age, we might think of decline. But if I ask you to think of one or two people who've lived a, you know, a long, rewarding life, you might be able to think of grandparents or uncles or personalities um, that, that really illustrate that aging can be done in a way that can be be very fulfilling. Hmm. So, and, and uh, one of the things that you do in your book uh, is to to pick up on those those personal narratives of individuals who who have uh, you know aged really well, really successfully. And um, I, I was particularly interested in reading about Coach Wooden, uh, and you know, and and, and thinking about things uh, from from his perspective of of you know what I guess uh, some referred to as micromanagement early on in his career, but that. You know, attention to detail and planning, and being very kind of, uh, I suppose, a, a, a manager of his own uh, existence and his own his own kind of life. Um, but then, you know, thinking about those people as as kind of, I guess, um, archetypes of something that we're, you know, perhaps um, want to aim for: successful uh, older adults. Um, I, I was wondering, as I as I read, well, you know, to what extent is this really? You know, and, and, and a kind of attitudinal thing, a subjective perspective, because you know, as I as I get older myself, I think you know I'm I'm you know a little bit slower at things than than I used to be. But so I wonder how 
you know, viewing the, the, the sort of changes um, of, of life in, in those respects, how it actually helps to view it as a change as opposed to a, a decline? Does that just sort of put a positive spin on something, you know, and, and, and that improves things in and of itself? I certainly think attitude is important. There's definitely biological changes that can lead to decline, and that's widely documented. But now what's more emerging is that older people seem to compensate or find ways to enjoy life. Um, so speaking to John Wooden, who is a, a famous UCLA basketball coach who passed away at the age of 99, I got to interview him at age 95, and he had a lot of perspective. He had a lot of good friendships. Even though his wife had passed away 30 years ago, he was surrounded by people who would come and talk to him. He kept busy with you know, teaching and activities and mentoring people. But he also seemed to find time for me, which I think says something to how he's really interested in you know, people who want to make aging a little more um, clear. And you know, his take-home message was simply, you know, stay active, stay positive, and have some variety. Hmm. And if you look for common themes, attitude does play a big role. Staying positive is important because, yes, as we get older, there's a lot of challenges. Um, and we can focus on those, but we can also focus on, you know, what we can do or the good parts. Having variety can really lead to a lot of, you know, stimulating activities. Um, and staying active is really important, both physically and mentally. If you're able to do so, especially if you're healthy, um, those things seem to make, to make a big difference and allow us to age well. And, you know, Coach Wooden, as well as some of the other people I interviewed, were really, for me, mentors of successful aging. And that's why I tried to bring out that there's no one way to do it. Hmm. Um, but that, but that, um, the, the the physical aspect of successful aging uh, seems to be be quite an important thing. Of, you know, you talk about variety there, but also of um, you know of being active physically and and the relationship between physical activity and cognition and memory and uh, and the sort of the positive associations of that, which I think for some people, uh, you know, it could be a bit of a surprise that, you know, using your legs uh, is, is good for using your head and, and, and such like. Can you, can you say something about that? Absolutely. I think that's when people think of staying sharp or keeping your brain fit, they think of computer-based brain training, you know, puzzles, Sudoku. Um, but the truth is, there's no really good evidence that shows that doing the computer-based brain training or the puzzles improve your memory to the point that it transfers to other tasks that people are really concerned about, like where you put your keys or the name of the person you met the other day. And if anything, it leads to more sedentary behavior, which takes away from what science has really shown can improve memory, which is physical activity. So a lot of research now has shown that walking three or four times a week for 45 minutes can lead to changes in the brain, specifically the hippocampus, that reduce the effects of aging. So typically after the age of 50, the volume of the hippocampus declines by about 1% every year. And when they did this study, when they had people either walk or stretch, the, the group that was doing the walking had their, their hippocampus actually increased in volume in the first year by 2%. So and, and it's, for, it's the brain changes that can actually then enhance memory. And, th yeah. and those changes, you know, we don't know if they last long. 
Um, but if you can maintain that level of brain health, then it certainly helps, you know, it shows that it helps you on various tests of memory and, mm. and retention. And, and for a, a non-specialist a non like me, um, what, what's so important about a hippocampus? Well, you know, many parts of the brain are involved in memory, but the hippocampus seems especially tuned to the encoding of new information and then the same retrieval of that information. So mm -hmm. if the hippocampus starts to shrink or decline, you have fewer resources that allow you to encode things richly and then retrieve them kind of quickly and accurately. Okay. So, you know, seeing these parts of the brain decline in volume with age is kind of what's expected. But what's unexpected is that something like physical activity can lead to, you know, changes, positive changes in the brain. I think most of us would think that, you know, brain activities enhance, you know, brain yeah. functioning. <laughs> um, and this is important not just for people who are older, it's for people who are middle aged, it's for, you know, students in classrooms who mm. sit for six or seven hours a day. If you break this up with a little bit of physical exercise, even 15 or 20 minutes in the morning and same in the afternoon, that can lead to you know, positive effects on learning, hmm. probably less mind wandering, you know, being more focused. So I, I think yeah. we sometimes think of the brain as kind of something that needs to be stimulated, but it's the, the mind and the body are intimately connected. Hmm. Well, I, I think that there's certainly for me, a, a sense of a kind of disconnection between you know, the brain and the body, that they are, you know, seemingly separate entities and that, you know, that you have, we talk of physical health and mental health and they, they seem to be separate in, in, in some way or other. Um, but, you know, again, I, I can think of, uh, you know, anecdotal kind of uh, things from, from my own uh, work, for instance, whereby, you know, going, going to the gym in the morning or cycling into work or, or whatever it might be, um, you know, it just seems to have a, a kind of a, a positive uh, effect on, you know, on the day, on how I kind of uh, feel, but also on the, on my perceived sharpness, if you like. Um, and and but interestingly, there that you say that this isn't just a kind of a good message for um, uh, those in in their later years, but uh, right the way throughout the the life course. Um, and and I think you know that's potentially quite a, a, a useful message here that uh, you know that that successful aging starts young. Absolutely, it starts with you know habits too, from eating habits, learning habits. Um, Physical exercise is sometimes it's it's hard to take on or it's hard to you know join a gym, um, but if you then enjoy those benefits and see how you feel afterwards, you know then it's reinforcing. If you do it with someone else, it can be reinforcing. So, hmm. I think people are still searching for and waiting for science to deliver a kind of a magic pill that will <laughs> either enhance longevity or at the very least improve memory you know and there have been many efforts at this ranging from supplements like or even you know natural foods blueberries red wine chocolate and the, the truth is there might be ingredients there that can help memory but the amount that you'd need to eat to to see an observable benefit would be huge amounts that would probably be offset by the sugars or the fats <laughs> or other things that are yeah. associated with these things or the alcohol and I think like a lot of things, and the older adults who I spoke to, a lot of them would say they really would focus on moderation. You know, they knew the things they liked, they knew the things they didn't like, they tried to reduce the things they don't like, enhance the things they do like, but they lived life with some degree of moderation. Some of them drank, you know, a glass or two of wine 
a day or a week. Some of them smoked, but you know, you learn what habits can work for you and learn what habits you know, are beneficial. And by and large, exercise is something, or at the very least, staying active. Some people dance, some people garden, some people you know, chase after grandkids. And sometimes it's not just physical activity, it's you know, just getting out every day and doing something that's meaningful hmm. can, can be very important. In, in the words of my own father, mod, moderation in all things. Um, but uh, but it also, I think unless science has not delivered the magic pill, so we don't know, especially with nutrition, you know, what is good, what is bad. There's a, still a lot of you know, diets that emphasize one thing over another. But until we really have definitive proof, moderation does seem to be important. And that's another theme that came up is balance. Balance is incredibly important as we get older, both physical balance, but also mental balance. Um, mental balance, I think we strive for. We have jobs, but we also want to have time for family or leisure. Hmm. Um, and they're often you know, at odds. And then physical balance, even though we are concerned about memory as we get older, probably what is more concerning and you know, something that we can train is physical balance. Because the truth is, after the age of 60, you're very likely to experience a fall and a fall can lead to a you know broken hip a hospital stay which takes away from you being able to walk your memory declines you might get an infection all sorts of things that can result from a fall and we don't really appreciate our physical balance until we lose it until we experience a fall so i think probably if there's interventions that can be useful and simple it's balance training starting with just standing on one foot with something nearby and seeing how long you can balance. And oftentimes it's just five or 10 seconds and then you, you'll lose balance. And this is a sign that your cerebellum really just wants a workout. Okay. And you don't, you don't need to buy anything, you don't need to eat anything. This is, these are pretty simple exercises that you, know, you can go from doing for five to 10 seconds to longer, you don't need to go to a yoga class. And then you can get appreciation for your level of balance because the truth is it's when you get out of bed at night to use the bathroom and it's 11 p.m. and it's dark and you trip over the dog you know those are the activities that are going to really send you down a path that is not going to be healthy mm. so the so the message is that uh, it, we shouldn't be waiting for the the, the kind of uh, the science silver bullet but uh, get on with with physical exercises and, and and healthy eating habits and such like and, and and balance training and take responsibility for it ourselves I guess um, and, and I mean that's the perspective I have as a psychologist I mean there's definitely biological changes and things that hopefully there'll be breakthroughs but as of yet there's no cure for dementia but we also know dementia might be preventable even if you have genetic predispositions, you know, there are activities you can do that might be able to offset these things, ranging from physical activity to nutrition. And, you know, sometimes a lot of this starts with attitude. I'm not going to say it's all about attitude, but if you have a positive attitude about aging, then you're less likely to say, well, I'm 60 or 70. I, you know, I can't go on long walks anymore, or I'm so old, I, I can't be doing certain things. And it's not like you should be doing extreme activities in fact a lot of younger people go jogging or run and you know that can lead to, to really good cardiovascular activity but when you're 50 or 60 and your joints are you know not what they used to be you don't need to run to get that same level of exercise even you know walking walking slowly try and increase your rate of walking can give you these important benefits mm. 
So I want to turn now uh, our attention to f towards your your research and your teaching in particular, um, and, um, and and just ask a little bit about how the research evidence that you're really familiar with and that you have a, such a, a deep knowledge of um, around memory and cognition and, and, and learning, how that itself has influenced your own practice as a, as a teacher. A lot of the people who are listening to this will be currently practicing teachers themselves. So it'll be really interesting to see what that connection is between the research and your own practice. Oh, absolutely. I think this comes back to this concept of metacognition. And oftentimes, we're not the best expert for our own memory and learning. So we might think we learn well one way, or we learn well when we highlight information. <clears throat> but the truth is, there might be more potent and stronger learning strategies that we can implement. Oftentimes, they're harder, they're less desirable from the learner's perspective, because they take more effort. But this is this concept of desirable difficulties that you know sometimes if you make the learning events slightly more challenging, people will end up remembering and learning more information. So in my classes, I do try and I used to you know lecture for 60 or 70 minutes straight, but now I've really tried to, you know, after 10 or 15 minutes, ask the class a question, make sure that you know 10 people answer the question. So I can see a variety of responses that I get, and many of them might not be correct, but then I get feedback about my own teaching. Like what are students picking up on and think that's important? Mm. And then I can kind of modify these things. And I also know that people, especially in this day and age, distraction is a, is a real issue. I mean, it, it's natural to mind wander and you know, let your mind go to other things after even 10 or 15 minutes of a lecture. But when you have a computer in front of you and you have Facebook and you have all sorts of things you could do while the lecture is going on and on about something that might not be you know, as exciting as you might think <laughs> it is, it's very hard to, to prevent distraction. And I think as an instructor, a teacher, you almost have to work with that because it's, it's not realistic to tell people, put away your laptops for the rest of your life or for the next hour. Yeah. Because even if one or two people pull out a smartphone or a laptop, we know then other people are thinking that, you know, oh, I need to check my email. <laughs> so I've tried to incorporate more breaks where it's very directed at, you know, now we've, you know, let's take a short five minute break so you can let your mind wander, you can check your phone, you can do what you need to do, and then let's try and focus again for another 20 minutes. Um, but that's something I learned over 10 years of instruction that I used to just, you know, my job was a lecturer or a teacher <laughs> Plow to and give the information, but it's clear that students are not retaining it. Um, so I think this concept of metacognition is important. It's because sometimes our perceptions of learning are not always accurate in terms of how people actually learn. And, you know, I think students need to be made aware of it, but also instructors especially. You know, when I was in high school, there was no real instruction about how to learn. You just figured it out. And, you know, some students were better at it than others, even though a lot of these students were very intelligent. Some just had trouble focusing. And so if there was, you know, more breaks built in, more, you know, testing that was low stakes to see what students were picking up on, that probably would have huge benefits. So those are some of the strategies I've tried to incorporate based on you know, the science of learning, which has shown that you know, errorful learning can be beneficial both for the student, but also for the instructor. And how sometimes we might think if something's easy to learn, we'll remember it later. But in fact, just the opposite is usually true. 
you know, if I tell you my name is Alan, you'll think, oh, okay, I'll remember that. But the truth is you haven't done anything to try and remember the name. You haven't incorporated it with the other Alans you know. I haven't, you know, told you what it rhymes with or why I'm named Alan. But as soon as you engage in these deeper activities, that leads to good learning. But I think what we're often after is easy learning because easy learning feels like it sinks in faster. Um, but the truth is easy, easy learning leads to fast forgetting. So it, it's really a challenge to build in kind of the obstacles you want that can lead to deeper learning. So do you, do you think that then in our, 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 this modern life of, um, you know, automatized or automated functions, uh, um, you know, through things like, uh, you know, Alexa and what have you and, you know, AI coming into our lives. Do you think that the, the, the kind of changes that are going on around us that are seemingly, you know, trying to address making things easier for us to, to live and to, you know, enjoy our lives actually might um, kind of collectively hinder uh, our ability to stay sharp? I certainly think there's many advantages to having technology at your fingertips and to be able to access information quickly, offload information that you don't want to burden your memory with. Um, but there are also costs, and, and this can lead to things like, I don't need to know it because I can look it up on Wikipedia. Mm. And the truth mm -hmm. is, you, you might not need to know specific facts or the exact year something was invented, but you should generally know when World War II was. You know, you should know these general historical periods of time, whether you're just memorizing the dates, at least initially, or tying it to some, you know, other events that make it more memorable, that's debatable. But I think there are, there are, there's cause for concern if we think, well, why do I need to burden my memory with these things when I can find it all online? Mm. And sometimes if you quickly look something up online, you read the information, then you think, okay, I've got it now. But because you didn't do anything with the information, you quickly forget it. So I've had this experience where I've looked up repeatedly the same information, and I know I've looked it up, but I just, when I read it, it just makes sense, and then I don't do anything with it. So now I need to really like test myself and say, what do I think the answer is? Why am I looking it up again? Um, and hopefully that leads to better learning. But you know, we, we get to be slightly lazy learners because mm. we have these, you know, these things in place. So it, one of the things that, that sparks off in my mind there is this notion of, of cognitive load. And, um, and, and particularly, you know, if, if we're reducing uh, the, the kind of load on our, on our, on our cognition, our brains, uh, through the use of, you know, um, I don't know, technology that's, that's designed to make things easier, you know, um, how, how does that kind of feed into uh, this, you know, the, the ideas of cognitive load theory and how it relates to, to, uh, uh, to learning as, as we age. If, if, if the, you know, the society in which we live is kind of engineering things to make life easier for us uh, and, and almost kind of reduce um, cognitive load in, in, in areas, then, you know, what, what, what can we do, I guess, uh, to, to try to, you know, optimize that, that idea of cognitive load and, um, and, and you know, and to, to ensure that we're trying to stay sharp as we, as we age? It's a great question because the truth is we are overwhelmed with information which can lead us to hold on to thoughts and bring in other information and look something up and then switch modes to checking email. And this can lead to distraction and, and a cognitive load issue. And it, I think as we get older, 
there may actually be some interesting paradoxical effects. Certainly, we can be more distracted as we age. Sometimes it's harder to focus our attention. But perhaps what might happen, and this could also be a cohort issue, just that older people aren't using technology the same way younger people are, older people might focus more on what I think is important. So imagine a, a driver. We know older drivers have slower reaction times. You know, their peripheral vision isn't as good. So younger drivers are, you know, by and large, have better sensory systems. But, you know, there are some data showing that older people in general might be safer drivers than younger people. And that seems kind of curious. And the reason is, is older people can, you know, reduce cognitive load. They, can, they won't pick up their cell phone as frequently while they're driving. They won't be checking their email. They might not be intoxicated. They're more likely to wear a seatbelt. Younger people might take more risks. They're more distracted. Uh, they don't have as much experience driving, and they feel you know, that they can certainly drive faster. And they do have the sensory skills to do so. But I think as we get to know ourselves a little more, we, we understand why there might be benefits to slowing down. Of course, older adults might be slower drivers too, so that can lead to, <laughs> if not fewer accidents, maybe the severity of the accidents aren't as, as great. But it goes against the wisdom that, you know, as we get older, we're just worse at everything. Hmm. And I think some of it certainly has to do with cognitive load. Older adults, you know, as you increase cognitive load, older adults certainly perform worse than younger people who are actually very good at holding on to many things and multitasking. But the truth is there's no such thing as multitasking. You're really switching between many tasks at the same time. And younger people are very good at doing things rapidly, switching between four different tasks. As we get older, it's harder to do that. It's hard to switch between one task and remember what we did in the other. And so one strategy or skill we might develop is not to do that. Maybe not take on you know, four tasks at the same time and focus more on one, one that's more meaningful, even if that means we might not get as much done or as quickly as possible. So you know, cognitive load is definitely an issue in a learning environment, in a classroom setting. Um, and maybe as we get older, despite impairments when we've got a lot of information, that compensation mechanism might be especially useful. And you know, perhaps an, an interesting and exciting extension would be, instead of trying to get older people to be like young people, what if we took young people and tried to make them like older people? Yeah. You know, in certain ways, like you know, focus on what's important, be selective, you know, take one task on, try and then move on to the next one. And there might be benefits to kind of pairing younger learners with older learners, just so you see these different approaches. And not that one is better than the other, but that they're different. And there might be benefits to kind of learning from an older learner, and an older learner could benefit from you know how a younger learner might learn. Yeah, and I think the, the implications and, and applications in the in the classroom there are really you know they're, they're quite stark in that you know we we have. Uh, you know, bodies of knowledge in, in curricula that, you know, as, as communities and societies, we have agreed that, you know, this, these are the things that we want, uh, you know, our young people to, to master, to, you know, to, to develop, you know, great fluency in and such like. And, you know, the, the kind of the, the cognitive load there, the germane cognitive load of, of you know, just those things is, is sufficient, uh, you know, is more than sufficient, I think, to, to, you know, to challenge, to create those desirable difficulties. And when you start to add in, 
you know, the, the kind of myriad extra, uh, you know, stimuli of mobile phones and, you know, uh, whatever it might be, social media, then, you know, that task switching that you, you talk about there, um, you know, becomes really self-evident. And, and, you know, I, I mean, I, I work with somebody who is a, who's a real kind of task switcher, you know, firing through all kinds of different things, uh, you know, in, in some kind of almost, you know, continuous stream. Um, but, you know, the, the, the evidence seems to suggest that, um, you know, that being more kind of uh, focused on, on individual, you know, on, on single tasks, which I guess is what we're, we're doing all the time. Like you say, multitasking is not a thing. It's just task switching and focusing on, on single tasks at any, end of, uh, any given time. Um, seems to be, you know, quite a, a, a good thing for a classroom teacher to, to you know, be really aware of um, in, in engineering sequences of lessons and learning activities for students to really try and reduce, uh, you know, that, that extraneous cognitive load and get them to focus in on the, on the stuff that we really want them to think about. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's certainly a challenge in a classroom with 30 students and everyone's distracted at different times, but, um, you know, sometimes we try and focus on too much and, and the main message is lost. And I have this in the classes I teach, you know, I'll have students come to my office and say, you know, I did poorly on the exam, you know, but I've read the textbook seven or eight times. I came to all the lectures, I made notes. Um, and I look at their textbook and about 80% of the textbook is highlighted, <laughs> which suggests that they're really focused and they're, they're putting the time in, but they're having difficulty extracting what's important. You know, like instead of highlighting 80% of the textbook, some other students seem to be able to come in and kind of extract the important themes, know what questions would be relevant. And so it's kind of a mystery to me, like how do these two types of students differ? They're both putting in the time and effort and they're both fairly intelligent, I think one is just better at being selective. And I think that's something that you get with experience, you know, that's the difference between a first year student and a fourth year student. But that might also be the difference between a younger college student and an older retired adult who's seen a lot of, you know, scenarios and situations. And maybe they're not quickly recalling information but they kind of get a sense of what are the important themes and those are the things that they, they focus on and try and remember. Mm, and, and equally from a, an instructional point of view, uh, you know, it might be the difference between uh, a less experienced and a more experienced teacher uh, to, you know, who's thinking about, uh, you know, what is being presented in what order and, you know, and, and, and what kind of tangents and such like are brought into to things and actually kind of managing the learning experience for students and, and kind of scaffolding things in such a way as to keep the focus really, you know, really tight and to reduce that that kind of task switching. I, I always think of my own uh, teaching. I, I think I, I, I tend, tend to think that I was probably uh, pretty bad uh, when it came to, um, you know, going off on a tangent and inc incorporating all kinds of, you know, extraneous stuff. Uh, for the sake of either, you know, providing some kind of, you know, what I perceived as entertainment or, um, you know, or, or probably my, my own kind of uh, flight of fancy as I, you know, went off on, on, on some some odd uh, tangent. And that, and that still happens, to be honest with you, with my own teaching. I think I've got better at it the more I've, I've read about 
uh, you know, desirable dif difficulties and, and cognitive load. But still, um, I, I, I do find that, you know, in, in the middle of, of a training session or something like that, then, you know, I'll be, um, I, I don't know, translating the word blunderbuss into some, you know, some, some other language and, and looking for the root of the word and then having to apologize to people as, you know, we've got off on a complete wild goose chase. But, so maybe that's the maybe I need to to, uh, to think of, of application a little more than just the theory of it. No, I think that's true. Your metacognition has probably become better because you're more aware of you know what as a presenter and teacher what things work and what things don't. Even though it, it definitely feels more fluid and engaging if you tell more stories and anecdotes and go off on tangents, and students probably enjoy that. But I've learned one thing. I used to really think as a teacher, my job was just to communicate as much information as I could and just assume the students would somehow pick it up. But that's certainly not the case, and I'm not an effective teacher if I'm doing that. That's really what the textbook can be for. Um, so I've learned that it's really important to pause more, <laughs> and that's one thing I need to tell myself, that it's okay to have some quiet time or if I ask a question, probably the worst thing I can do is answer it myself. I've now implemented more for myself that I'm not going to go back to the lecture until three students have tried to answer this question. And that gives me some time for my own reflection. They have to think more about the material. And, you know, hopefully some of the responses will be insightful, not that there's just one correct answer, or even if there is, the mistakes people make tell you about what job you're doing as a teacher, but also what does your audience know, which is this challenge in this curse of knowledge illusion that, you know, if you know something, it seems easy, so it should be easy for the other people to pick up on. Yeah. But as a teacher who's taught it 10, 20 times, you've lost track of just how easy it is or how hard it is. Mm. So mm. I think it's important to get some feedback. Of course, some students are distracted or not interested. But if someone's ready to raise their hand and answer a question, they don't get it right, that says something to, about what you're doing as a teacher, not, you know, what they're picking up on necessarily. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that that thing of, um, of waiting, you know, asking questions, of pausing, of, um, of having kind of silent moments, yeah, that, that from certainly when I was speaking, that always seemed to be the, the kind of almost counterintuitive, you know, that there, sh there should be, you know, like you say, instruction, I should be teaching, I should be telling, um, and, 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 and developing the, the kind of self-awareness and I guess the, the, the metacognitive uh, kind of skill to, to recognize the value of that seemingly counterintuitive pause, uh, the, the kind of awkward silence that you leave hanging there when you ask a question and you provide that time for you know, thinking and, and for people to formulate their answers and such like, it's just so important. But, you know, the, yeah. the, and, and I want to ask you in a, in a moment about teacher preparation uh, programs and, and, um, and, and sort of implications of your own research work to, to those things. But it's something that you know, te teaching just takes an awful long time to become really, really adept at. And, you know, having having I think having the time to, to do that is something that often it, it seems to be absent from you know, from the, the, the kind of professional development of, of teachers in schools. It's almost like you've got to arrive in school and be instantly brilliant and, and maintain brilliance from day one. And that, that, that sort of 
you know, the learning curve of the of the of the teaching craft, if you like, is something that is you know it's it's a pretty pretty uh, slow and steady arc, I think, um, and recognition of that and and using the science. Uh, of, of cognition to, to try to, to bolster that and to help people to have the confidence to recognize that you know these things take, take time is I think incredibly important actually to you know for, for, for teacher workforces around the world um, to you know for, uh, to, to have a kind of a scientific basis that both describes and enhances the, the experience of being a teacher, which is a, a pretty um, uh, unique and you know multi-dimensional and and uh, you know uh, stimulating, engaging activity, but one you know a, a, about which you know we, we don't know enough. But as we do learn more, um, that needs to be a part of these things. I think. But Absolutely, and I think I mean it takes time and preparation when you're teaching. Some of it takes experience, you know, to make these mistakes. And, you know, I've seen myself give long lectures that even I get bored of listening to. <laughs> so I can only imagine, you know, how a student would feel if, you know, they had to sit through this. So I've tried to use some of the evidence-based learning techniques, desirable difficulties, but some, you know, new work shows what isn't that surprising, but, you know, taking a stretching break 20 minutes into a lecture you'd think would be very disruptive, but can actually be very useful, hmm. both for the students, but also for yourself. You know, you can reset, you know, reduce some of the mind wandering, hmm. and then get back get back to, to, to business. And also even taking more breaks, because then you get some feedback about, you know, the questions students have. Yeah. And, it, you know, I know time is always an issue, but sometimes, you know, the less time you have, the better it can be. Students can always consult the textbook or find you later. Um, but I, I think that's the challenge is to understand that, you know, learning takes a time, it takes challenges, and it doesn't always feel right. But that feeling of learning can, can sometimes be misleading. If you make it easy or if you just listen to something, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to remember it. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's what's you know difficult as a teacher is you, you you have a limited amount of time you have so many students you want to get the message out there, but I I feel like sometimes as a teacher especially in higher education your job is just to get people enthusiastic about something, pique their interest and curiosity, you know present some interesting material but then have them really question it, mm -hmm. and sometimes they'll come up with good questions for new research or sometimes they'll show the problems with the current research and. To me, that's exciting as an instructor because you know it's engaging. Um, but you know, there, there's always a challenge of how much material can you cover versus how much lively discussion can you have. And and that uh, certainly here in the UK has been a, um, a a major topic of conversation over the last few years with curriculum reform, which uh, you know has has really increased the. Uh, the, the content that students are expected to master over the course of their, their, their time in primary and then in, in high school. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I hear very often from teachers is, you know, with those increased um, demands on, 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 you know, uh, helping students to, to master this stuff, that, you know, time just seems to be becoming, you know, ever, ever tighter, ever more constrained. So then, you know, there these these sort of... Um, 
what seem to be, you know, uh, they're not, not counterintuitive findings, but those, those findings that seem to suggest doing things that, you know, say, take more time, take a break, take, you know, uh, stretch things out, focus on one thing at a time and so on and so on. I think that presents a real challenge, um, it, you know, in the practice of the classroom teacher to try to, you know, bring research evidence and then the kind of, you know, the pragmatic need of being there in a classroom with 30 students day in, day out, and to find that kind of sweet spot somewhere in the middle um, that, you know, that, that, that uses that evidence positively, but also makes things manageable, makes things, you know, uh, efficient um, and, and effective for, for learners. Yeah, I think, although we spend a lot of time on course material, having a class on learning how to learn or learning strategies and even time management is going to be increasingly important, especially when we have access to so much material online. We can do so much self-regulated learning that how much learning happens in the classroom, you know, might be reduced. But if you can make learning outside of the classroom enhanced by giving people study strategies, showing them what strategies might work or might not work, have them report back to you. You know, what strategies did you use, and how do you know they're effective? Mm. Can really be. Kind of, to me, that's, I learned how to learn in my first year of university. And a lot of it was through failure, because a lot of it was just memorizing things, and I did it, but <laughs> I wasn't getting a deeper understanding. And sometimes I was rewarded for that, that memory work, and I thought, well, that, that must mean I'm good at biochemistry. But the truth is, I, I wasn't good at it. I was just found some tricks. Yep. Um, so you, you have to be careful with understanding, just because I know something, does that mean I'll remember it. Does it mean I've learned it? Does that mean I'm interested in it? So I think, you know, bringing this back to kind of a lifespan perspective, when we're younger, we really are information gatherers. We really try and get as much information as we can, partly because we don't know what's going to be important later. Sometimes it's the struggling student who memorizes a bunch of stuff but doesn't really know what's testable, like what, what are the important themes. And as we go through life, we learn, you know, yeah, it'd be nice to remember the names of these people because I'll see them again. But if I forget a name or a face, that's not the end of the world. What's more critical is remembering kind of strategies that are effective at meetings or strategies that have helped me in the past to learn information. And so I think as we get older and more experienced, we almost, this disguises itself as wisdom. We know how to get things done, even if we can't always explain it. And this can be like a challenge for teachers who, it was 20 years ago they learned the material, and now they're trying to teach it again to, to new learners, and it's, it's really challenging to say, well, this is what I did, or I don't even remember what I did. Hmm. So I think that's why this lifespan development approach is, is important, because metacognition can change as we get older, and we might have different perspectives, but it's hard to then take the perspective of a new learner sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And and then thinking of, of new learners in a, uh, a teacher training or uh, in, instructional program. So, you know, people who have come in to learn the, the craft of, of teaching, um, you know, I, I'd like to put you in the position of, um, of sitting there um, with the people responsible for these these programs. So maybe you're talking to. I don't know the, the the deans for impact guys or uh, the, the the head of the faculty of education, whomsoever it might be, but the people responsible for these these programs. Um, um what 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 three three tips, let's say, uh, or, or or pieces of uh, useful pieces of information would you impart to them um, in, in terms of kind of lessons for those people who are making 
uh, decisions about teacher preparation programs and, and, and the development of teachers as they go through their career, what would you suggest? Well, I definitely think more time and resources need to be directed at learning how to learn, both from the teacher's perspective and the student's perspective. So instead of you jumping into a history class and presenting all the material, you know, every you know, few classes ask students, how are you learning this? Why do you think this works? Is it working? You know, I have students predict their performance on a test just to see, I'm curious who are the best calibrated students, but I'm also interested in how well do I think students know it? And sometimes those things are at odds. Like, I think this is an easy question, but students struggled with it, and that's a problem. And so those sorts of assessments can be very useful. Most assessments for teachers is really like, did students like the class? Yeah, the guy made some funny jokes. It was a topic that, you know, he made interesting. But there's very little on, you know, how did this student motivate you to learn? Um, how did this teacher, you know, make it challenging for you so that you benefited long run? And so I think sometimes a focus on, you know, making these learning objectives a little clearer in terms of what strategies would work would, would be helpful. And then some things that we just know that students are, get more distracted and it's not our job to keep people not distracted, but if we know physical activity can be good and we know people aren't getting enough of it, you know, no one should laugh if you say, okay, I want you to do 10 jumping jacks now, we've been talking for 20 minutes. You know, that if, if I was trying to train astronauts, that would make sense maybe. Um, but the, the truth is that can be very beneficial, taking a break, getting your blood flowing, moving your body, that can be very beneficial. So I think, you know, those two things are would be important things to implement in a classroom. And I think the last thing is we, we all know we're busy and we have busy schedules and we can't get things done. But sometimes less is more, you know, instead of saying you need to focus on all 12 chapters, I often tell students, look, there, I'm going to cover some material in more detail than others because either I'm interested in it or I think it's got more of an impact for your lives or mine. That doesn't mean the other material isn't important, but that's I'm really going to try and focus on a little bit less so that you can then understand the other material in a broader context. Mm. And mm. for a while, I felt like I might have been cheating students or because I didn't cover everything. But now I feel like you know, that's being fair and honest is that, you know, we don't have time for all of these things. So if you can focus on what is either important to you or oftentimes students want to say what's important to the instructor because they want to do well on the test, that can that can kind of ease the burden of, you know, teaching everything in the textbook. Yeah. And I think if you go back to the first point, if there's more time spent on learning how to learn, students should then feel equipped that they can learn chapter eight on their own and not just read it, they can learn it by, you know, the active learning process, mm -hmm. testing themselves, working with a partner, you know, preparing to teach is actually a very effective way to learn something. Um, so if you tell students, you know, you know, chapter eight will be something that you're going to teach your classmates next week, people will have to read it closely because there's some anxiety associated with preparing to teach. So just skills like that and experiences like that can be really beneficial you know, beyond that course. And those, those are the things that I remembered. Some of them I discovered myself, some of them I read about but didn't really implement. Um, but having those experiences and, and learning more how you learn, and everyone thinks their, their learning style might be unique or they have, you know, strengths and weaknesses. But the truth is, most of these strategies are effective for most people. 
And some might feel more challenging, but th those challenges can lead to really good long-term outcomes. Mm. So, so the, the thing that really um, comes out of that for me then is that without identifying what those, uh, I guess what, what some researchers like uh, Ray Land and others would describe as the threshold concepts, without figuring out what those, you know, the really important things are, you know, in your, I don't know, your history curriculum or mathematics curriculum or whatever it is that you're teaching and your students are learning, without identifying those those big hitters, then the process of, uh, you know, working out what to spend more time on and, and what to spend less time on actually, you know, it seems, seems a bit arbitrary. So, and, uh, you know, that deep understanding of, of what, what are the kind of the, the real uh, the pivot points in your curriculum, those things that are, you know, are going to give leverage to, to somebody in, in terms of understanding the broader, uh, you know, material that, that, that they're trying to encounter. That seems to be a really, you know, really important thing for me. Yeah, and it's a real challenge. You take a textbook and, you know, students might identify some topics they think are important, whereas the instructor identifies other topics they deem important. And that's where the disconnect is, is students will say, I thought this was important. And the instructor says, no, no, that's a detail. This is the other thing you need to know. Yeah. So I think that's the challenge is, you know, identifying what is important and what are details you could learn on your own. Um, and there's going to be some disconnect there, even from a new teacher to an older teacher. Um, but that's that's the real challenge, I think, in a self-regulated learning environment, too, is do you just start at the beginning of the book and work your way through, or do you kind of sample and look around and get a feel for what the book is about and then kind of hone in on a few things that might allow you to understand other information? And that's almost like the, the wisdom behind learning is knowing you're not going to be able to read it all 10 times, or if you do, you're not going to be using that time effectively. But focusing on you know ways that you can understand the material so that you learn it better it's fascinating stuff and i think that yeah well i think you're probably going to be in a job for as long as you want because <laughs> you know, there are, there are going to be questions that that you know will be i think uh, very hard to answer for for a long time about this you know about those you know how how you define those things how you learn uh, you know what what those those really kind of important things are how in that self-regulated learning environment how do you decipher how do you define you know but that's you know the, the study of those things i think um you know hopefully will be profitable for teachers in the classrooms so long as you know the research itself becomes um you know uh, well summarized and and made into a kind of uh, uh you know a, a useful useful format uh you know to moving beyond the kind of the academy and and into the realms of uh you know what a classroom teacher does each and every day um, but just think, thinking, thinking about um, you know uh, the you, drawing on this this wealth of uh, research experience and teaching experience that you have your, yourself, um, uh, I, I really like to, to just think about some some you know key kind of top tips uh, for you know any adult. Uh, you know, you, talk, you talked a little bit about, you know, physical um, exercise and the relationship between that and the maintenance of, of good cognitive function. But, you know, what can, what can any adult do, you know, today after, after listening to this? Uh, you know, what, what should be the, the, the next thing to do to try to, you know, develop those habits of, that, that uh, improve and maintain cognitive function? And also then, you know, if, if they're a teacher, um, you know, what can they do uh, specifically or, or what would be your top recommendation to help? Uh, the children in their class do those things to develop and improve and maintain cognition? Sure. Well, I think we're all 
lifelong learners. You know, it, learning doesn't just happen in the classroom. And I think as we get older, we're certainly learning more outside of the classroom. And then maybe when we retire, we're left with, what do I do now? You know, my, I'm finished with my job. And that's where you can really pursue some of the most important lifelong learning, whether it's you follow a passion or a hobby, whether it's, you know, more reading or more travel, because you're still stimulating yourself in ways that are probably is probably even more rewarding than simply, you know, being in a classroom. So I, I've seen a lot of older adults who've turned back to playing the piano or they're excited about, you know, their bird watching seminars or, you know, being around other people who are stimulating and engaging. And I think that's probably the most important thing as you get older is to maintain some level of stimulation, you know, that has some mental function. It doesn't have to be crossword puzzles. It's really what you're passionate about. And I think those are also the best teachers, are teachers who've stumbled across a topic that they're interested in and they're communicating in a way that they're enthusiastic and interested, but they're also critical. You know, I can tell you're interested in the science of learning, partly because you see it as the wave of the future, but you're also critical of the research or the past ways of thinking about things. And so I think, you know, as we are in a profession, we need to be critical. Why do I teach this way? Do I teach this way because I think it's effective? Why do I think it's effective? What measures am I taking? And as we get older, we, we're probably more aware of what works and what doesn't. And we're aware of we can't cover everything or do everything. So we really follow our passions and, and what we think is important. Mm -hmm. And then from a student's perspective, I think it can be overwhelming. You know, you're covering eight or nine topics a day sometimes in different classes, different teachers. You're tired. You have a lot of, you know, you have phones, you have, you know, social media. You can be constantly checking. And so I think sometimes it's you really do want to take a step back and say, why am I doing this? Is it just for the grade or is there something deeper that I'm interested in? And, you know, some of this would then result in self-regulated learning. I think yeah. the more you can engage someone, the more they'll go off on their own and be curious. And it's, it's hard to teach curiosity. But I think what you can do is if you give people enough, you know, freedom in terms of what they pursue, whether it's in history or chemistry, how they want to you know, you know, pursue something, some topic that's interested them, that will lead to some breakthrough. Like, you know, I'm not interested in chemistry, but I'm interested in the history of chemistry. Or I'm, you know, I, I am interested in business, but I never thought of it in this more theoretical, computational way. And those lead to, I think, the most exciting moments as a student is when you really find something that like captures you. Hmm. And that often does require some mistakes, some self-discovery, some failures, and then you stumble upon it, sometimes because of an enthusiastic teacher, but sometimes those teachers are, are not always going to be there in terms of fostering new learning. So you know, it's a bit of a cliche to follow your passions, but at least as a student, find something that gets you excited, even if it's not just an academic pursuit. And then, you know, that I think curiosity really does guide learning, you know, especially as we get older. And that seems like a, a, a great place to, to, to leave this conversation um, on that on that topic of, of curiosity. I think, uh, you know, uh, I, over the course of the last hour, um, talking about everything from from uh, physical exercise to uh, becoming more selective 
in, in you know in, in cognition to uh, to taking time to dr doing fewer things better um, you know I think I think you know you you've, we've covered a, a, a huge array of topics there but um, what what comes to, to light for me is you know is your own uh, passion there for for the for the, the things that you study um, clearly as a teacher uh, and and you know your your book uh, better with age uh, was uh, for me a really interesting read at, you know as I said at this point in my life um, and uh, and I, I'm sure that you know anybody who picks it up will will you know find uh, a real resonance um, in there you know no matter who you are um, so I think uh, I'd like to say thank you to you uh, for, for taking the, the time um, out of your, your Californian day uh, to, to talk to us um, here at Evidence-Based Education. Um, once again, um, Alan Castell's book, uh, Better With Age, is published by Oxford University Press and is out now. Um, Alan, uh, thank you ever so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Thanks. <laughs>